The secret to summer-ready skin is here. Osea's number one best-selling Andaria Algae Body Oil, clinically proven to instantly improve skin elasticity and transform dry skin to silky, soft, and unbelievably glowing. Its signature scent of freshly squeezed grapefruit, cypress, and mango mandarin transports you to sun-kissed summer days. Get healthy, glowing skin for summer with clean, vegan skincare from Osea. Get 10% off your first order site-wide with code GLOW at oseamalibu.com. Rising sea levels, extreme weather patterns, extinctions of species. Our planet needs protecting. I'm Adam Vaughan, the Environment Editor for The Times, and this is Planet Hope from The Times, in partnership with Rolex and its Perpetual Planet Initiative. In this podcast, we hear from leading experts from around the world who are committed to finding solutions. These explorers, scientists, entrepreneurs and citizens are committed to a common goal, to protect our home, Earth. Listen now wherever you get your podcasts. This is the Webbox Podcast. I'm Matt Chorley. Don't forget, you can listen to me live Monday to Friday, 10 till 1, on your DAB radio, on your smart speaker, or download the Times Radio app. Thank you for all of your messages about yesterday's episode, the last PMQ's unpacked of the series. You seem to find it quite amusing, so that was good. Coming up on today's episode, as MPs pack up and clear off for the summer, we take a look at the do's and don'ts of politicians going on holiday. From Howard Wilson getting his knees out to David Cameron very nearly getting his bum out when he tried to change his shorts under a Mickey Mouse towel. All of that coming up in just a moment. But first, as ever, let's take a wade through the news with today's columnist panel. Manveen Rana and someone called Matthew on Times Radio. Yes, it's Thursday. So Manveen Rana, host of the Stories of Our Times podcast is here. Morning, Manveen. Hello. And today, someone called Matthew is, of course, Matthew... Bell. Good morning, Matthew. Hello. Good morning. Good morning. It's good to be back. Nice to have you back with us. Oh, funny because it's Thank a good excuse to bring the bell. Now, <laughs> I'm not saying the news has already got a little bit recessed, but everyone seems to be slightly losing their marbles, uh, mainly in inside the Tory party. Um, so the first first example of this, Energy Secretary Grant Shapps has written a letter to Keir Starmer. He's put it on Twitter demanding that Labour foot the bill for the criminal damage that Just Stop Oil have done because some people who've given money to Just Stop Oil have also given money to the Labour Party. And Grant Shapps says to Keir Starmer, we will send you the invoice. Do you think this is going to work, Manveen? Uh, no. I mean, it's completely bonkers, as you say. It does feel like they're slightly losing their marbles. You know, to sort of claim that because one of your donors is also a donor to Just Stop Oil, it makes you, and I quote, the political wing of Just Stop Oil is a bit of a stretch. And to send that to a man who is a lawyer, I can't help thinking he's not going to get his money. Um, But also just as a political stunt, it's such an... I can't quite make sense of it. I just think, firstly, if you're the Tory party who have accepted hundreds of thousands of pounds from Russian oligarchs, and that's since the war broke out, perhaps don't remind people that that political parties might be influenced by the people who give them money. Um, I'm not sure that's a connection (laughs) you want to be making out loud. Um, And secondly, you know, like Keir Starmer has criticised Just Stop Oil in the past. I I can't help thinking Labour and Tories, you know, to turn this into a political stunt this week when we're seeing a global heat wave and people dying from it. And, you know, I'm not a, a climate scientist, but to your average layman, it does start to look like pretty good evidence for catastrophic global warming. I'm not sure they've read the room. 
you know, I think just stop all are very annoying, but I mean, they might be right about some of their policy changes. You know, I'm not, I'm just, I just think that's probably not the best place to, to focus all your energy right now. Um, I, I'm not, I'm not sure people are going to be outraged in the way that Grant Shapps thinks they will. So the letter that goes into some uh, detail says that uh, the Labour Party has accepted one and a half million pounds in donations from a man called Del Vince, who's also given money to Just Stop Oil. He says, I'm asking you to, and they just up oil yesterday through orange paint all over Grant Shapps government department, Department of Energy Security. She said, I'm invited to ask you to repair the damage caused to the department. The British public should not have to foot the bill for your mates in Just Stop Oil and their destructive activity. We should point out that actually uh, Keir Starmer has said uh, he would continue with the Tory plans for stiffer sentences for climate protesters. Uh, and he's called uh, Just Stop Oil arrogant and wrong. Uh, in the past. Um, uh, Matthew, is, is this line of attack going to work, do you think? Well, I think the real outrage is that Grant Shapps has wasted ministerial time um, <laughs> writing this letter. Um, I mean, if you get to the bottom of the letter, it says the, the total cost of the repairs, we estimate this to be three to £4,000. Well, I mean, that's a, a trifling amount if you consider the damage done by... Oh, Matthew, uh, Matthew, you've turned uh, into a robot. Uh, you've turned into a robot. We'll get rid of him. Get rid of him. Get rid of him. We'll try and get him back. Uh, <laughs> sorry about that, um, uh, Matthew. But yes, yeah, so the letter ends, uh, given your close connections to the group responsible for this damage, you must also be you must also be responsible for picking up the bill to clean up for them. We estimate this to be three to four thousand pounds. We will send you the invoice in due course. Is the very fact we are talking about this and putting Keir Starmer and Just Upon in the same sentence, mission accomplished for Guard Shaps, man, albeit we're saying that this letter's a bit daft. Honestly, I think most people have barely noticed it. And you know, as Matthew was as Matthew was saying Three to four thousand pounds is not is not huge when you've got a ministerial budget. Why is he wasting time writing a letter about this? Um, and also, like I, th- I think you could probably get a bit of paint removed for less. It makes me question their 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 process for commissioning um, jobs within the department too. <laughs> um, I, I I don't know. I th- I don't think this is particularly successful. And I really do think. I know just stop all are, are annoying, but most people in the country won't actually have had you know, have been victims of them in a way, in a way, you know, they, they've attacked our, our offices in the past, you know, they are annoying, they, they, they are disruptive, they're annoying, they get in the way. Most people won't have been on the other side of that, though, most people won't have felt the effects, but they are probably very aware of the moral argument. And I just think, in a week like this, I'm not sure that's where you want to turn your political gaze, you know, I, I, I don't think that's very good for any of the parties who, you know, don't seem to be doing as much as most people think is needed to avert the climate crisis. I think we've got uh, Matthew back now. In fact, Matthew, earlier this week we had Mark Rowley, um, the the commissioner of the Metropolitan Police, was on the show. And he said mm-hmm. he found Just Up Oil massively frustrating. So there was loads of ways to protest lawfully. Uh, and mm-hmm. he, actually, the interesting problem, which I hadn't really heard of this before, he said uh, uh, he had 550 police officers out on Monday just working on Just Up Oil and the protests they were doing, you know, slow walks and so on. And he said they should have been out working in communities, fighting crime rather than dealing with this nonsense, is how he put it. Um, and actually, the biggest problem with Just Up Oil is I just don't think they're doing very well. They're annoying people rather than building support for their campaign and their cause. 
Well, I agree. I mean, I did take the trouble to look up their website the other day, and I couldn't find anywhere on the website where it states what their actual policies are and what, they, what their solutions are to the problems they're complaining about. So I think it's all very well. I mean, in fact, of course, we encourage um, protest. You know, we have a long history in Britain of, of encouraging protest, and it's important. But you've got to have a solution in place uh, for when your protest succeeds. And so just to protest randomly and wantonly against the establishment and, and raining and frothing at the mouth, and, and throwing orange confetti at George Osborne without saying what you then want to happen, uh, it, it, I think it weakens your cause. Uh, so that's the uh, slightly peculiar behaviour of um, uh, Grant Shapps and Just Up Oil. Um, coming up close on the rails for oddest thing the Tories have done this week. Um, so we got the news yesterday that the Conservatives had chosen their candidate to be the Tory uh, mayoral candidate for the, uh, to run for the mayor of London. Uh, as a woman called Susan Hall uh, was named yesterday, um, the, she had her photo splashed all over the front of the Evening Standard, obviously London's uh, daily newspaper, um, posing, sort of punching the air with her two hands, but with a slightly unusual, well, just a, slight, a grimace on her face, as I would describe it, and her arms, instead of looking like she's punching the air with joy, looks like she's holding up two bags of shopping and somebody's stolen her shopping. That's probably the best way to describe it. Rather than just chalking this up to, well, that's just something that happens. Um, the uh, Nicky Aitken, the deputy chairman of the Conservative Party, has now written to Dylan Jones, the editor of the Standard, expressing sincere disappointment. Your choice of photo of Susan is clear mockery and it's contemptible. Uh, there's then a very involved uh, story about um, how their photographer was let in to take the pictures. and blah, blah, blah. Apparently she was reluctant to hold her arms up. Uh, and then she did it anyway. Uh, and um, yes, they're not happy. And they won't be, uh, they won't be cooperating with the Evening Standard again. Um, Matthew, uh, you've worked in newspapers for a long time. Um, do, <laughs> do you think this was a deliberate act or was this just a striking photo that you'd put on the front page? And of course it's a deliberate act, but it's always a little bit disappointing when newspapers choose to take the, the mischievous, childish route of finding the picture that's going to do the most damage to the person in question. Because there's a great responsibility when you're choosing the photograph, you know, on deadline to make sure you're representing the story fairly. And, um, you know, the fact is she looks completely mad in this, in this photo and it's the front cover of the paper. Um, and it's, and it's, I'm afraid, you know, it's a white, uh, bald man who's the editor uh, making fun of a woman who's doing very well in her career. So it's, it's not going to play out well. Um, on the other hand, you know, just the previous week, they put Hugh Edwards on the cover looking grizzled and sweaty, and um, that would have had the same effect. So it's a, it's a sort of, there's a history in British newspaper uh, mischief of doing this to, to everyone. Um, but, it's actually, but it's also politically interesting because the Evening Standard historically has always been a conservative-backing newspaper. Dylan Jones, who's the editor, came out in 2008 saying he was a proud Tory. But in fact, now I think that the fact that they are undermining the Tory candidates uh, with, this, uh, with this front cover suggests perhaps they're now choosing to back Sadiq Khan. But, I mean, you can read too much into it. But, yeah, I think it is a bit disappointing. I mean, you know, would you put uh, uh, a similar picture of, a, of an ageing, balding man on the cover? Probably not. So, uh, well, yeah. well, let me play devil's advocate for a moment. I don't remember okay. the Conservatives writing to the Evening Standard yeah. to complain about the picture of Ed Miliband eating a bacon sandwich. That's exactly right. what I thought of. Go on then, Mavi. <laughs> well, no, it's exactly what I thought of when, when this whole thing blew up. Because actually there's a long tradition of newspapers and photographers using 
the shot, which is a little bit cheeky, but sort of shows you something of a politician which isn't the polished front. You know, it's not the bit that they want to present. It's not the the formal speech. It's the it's the bit that you wouldn't know. But this is the person you're voting for, so you kind of want to see all sides. Um, and you know, it has it has possibly un, unfairly ruined political careers in the past. You had Ed Miliband eating the bacon sandwich. You had David Miliband with a ridiculous banana. Um, and you know, they, these images are massively undermining. Um, and this picture in particular, you know, I mean, she does look crazed. Uh, I don't know if this is a sign of the Evening Standard veering away from the Tories. I, I think she's a controversial candidate. I think a lot of conservative voters in London will struggle to support her, given that, you know, she's a Brexiteer, whereas a lot of London isn't. She was a huge supporter of Donald Trump. She loved Liz Truss's budget. Um, you know, she's she's not uh, a mainstream Tory by London standards, I would have thought. So, I'm you know, I'm sure that the paper is probably quite annoyed that she was chosen. But at the same time, I'm not sure the picture, you know, it is cheeky, but I don't think that's particularly new. I think political yeah. caricature and political photographs, which show you sort of more of a character, that that's, you know, pretty par for the course. Yeah, I'd, I must admit, I'd much rather live in a world where uh, <laughs> political parties didn't get to choose which photo you used. Um, and well, Liz Truss famously travelled everywhere with a photographer. Well, exactly, yeah. exactly. And actually, you know, all that stuff. And then they would only take their own photographer. They were the only pictures we got. So it was always, you know, yeah. they always looked, you know, they were the ones, that they, the, the pictures that they wanted. Uh, Manvin, I want to talk to you about pandas. Um, <laughs> Somebody has to. <laughs> it is. Oh, it is, is, oh hang, on, hang on, Manvin. We've got time. the sound of a panda. Hang on. Oh, well done. Just the background. There we are. <laughs> so you've been talking pandas on your, on uh, Stories of Our Times. Yeah, we have the Politics episode of today. Yeah, well, the panda diplomacy, it's a very real thing. So, you know, the Chinese, it is a, a state symbol. You don't get pandas anywhere else apart from the ones that get sent to zoos. And that's where China uses, um, basically becomes a bit murky. Foreign policy and panda policy seem to go hand in hand. So, you know, there was a moment where the Americans really an annoyed China over Taiwan and their, you know, they, they were making all the wrong noises, I guess. And, and China actually pulled one of its pandas back from Memphis Zoo. Um, and on top of that, sort of made it look like the Americans had been mistreating it. There were sort of press reports all over China telling telling that the Americans were barbarians. Look what they'd done to poor Yaya the panda. And Yaya was now being returned. So it's really interesting how they've been using pandas as sort of part of their diplomacy abroad, but also to put pressure on leaders. Once they've got them, they yeah. have to spend millions of pounds to keep them. Um, and they, you know, the, the, they usually, I mean, uh, Edinburgh had had pandas for ages and we all watched every summer thinking they might, they might be about to mate, they might have baby pandas and it never happened. But all of that too is sort yeah. of, you know, the Chinese sort of um, will control whether they send out a, 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 an, another panda, um, a, you know, a male panda if, if one, one of them is, isn't, uh, you know, if they're not happy. Now, have you noticed, everyone knows that Rishi Sunak is quite a small man. That's fine. Little Diddy Prime Minister. But he's not the only one. He's not the only one. Uh, Peter Carl uh, Jonathan is the Associate Professor at the University of Padua in Italy. He's been looking at exactly this, uh, the, our relationship with height. Uh, good morning, Peter. Hi, good morning. Um, take us through, first of all, the heights of uh, various world leaders and what that tells us about our relationship with tall and short men? Well, I think the whether or not um, politicians are actually getting shorter is a more complex uh, question than we can um, deal with in anecdotes, because we often think of people who are uh, short when they're not uh, particularly tall, like, say, six foot, two meters. But that's 
um, atypically tall for places like the UK, for places like Italy, for places like America. So take, for example, America, the average man is only five foot ten. So if we have a politician who's five foot nine, he's really not all that short. He's just a little bit shorter. Now, there's been a tradition, though, for many years um, that we 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 have elected taller people to office. Um, and that seems to, at least by these anecdotes, maybe maybe waning uh, a little bit. But I, I'm not sh I'm not convinced yet that there's a statistical trend here. It might be that we're cherry picking uh, that short man uh, kind of thing and almost um, body shaming in some ways. Oh, he's short. Therefore, you know, et cetera, et cetera. And so actually, it's, so you make a good point. So looking through the Rishi Sunak's five foot seven, the same as President Zelensky of Ukraine. Uh, and um, uh, Vladimir Putin as well. They're all the same, roughly the same yeah, height. Indeed. So the Ukrainian president is interesting, but when you when you see him framed with other uh, politicians, he's he's being towered over by yeah. the rest of them. So so I think for for the case of the Ukrainian president, for Zelensky, you know, he he didn't start his career in um, in politics. He was a comedian, and so. Uh, a comedian might have a different life trajectory that may be influenced by uh, his or her height. Yeah. And um, he happened to end up in politics because of the kind of the zeitgeist we have now of, of, of famous people like Trump, of course, yeah. being, being elected or Arnold Schwarzenegger as another example, being elected by their fame mm. um, more than their political chops. Ronald Reagan being another example from, of course, the, the 80s. Yeah. So Rishi Sunak is the smallest male prime minister since Winston Churchill, who was five foot six. And that's the thing, I suppose. That's the thing is that people think, oh, a towering, a towering politician. Actually, quite did he. Uh, Theresa May was five foot eight, uh, uh, which is taller than Rishi Sunak, but Liz Truss and Margaret Thatcher were both five foot five. Uh, Matthew, does this matter? Well, I think it's interesting how in the media, you can't tell how tall someone is by looking at them on television. It's only when you meet them in person. Um, and so, as you say, um, you know, Winston Churchill was tiny, but in fact, the image of him is of this towering colossus. And um, Andrew Roberts, who's that very short historian, he made the point that, in fact, Napoleon was a pretty average height uh, for men of that time. It's only because the political cartoonists of the times, like Gilray and Crickshank, portrayed him as this little fighting emperor that he became in our minds this little tiny troll uh so it's it's it's, it's also it's, it's this relativity of, of of who they're set against and the image that's portrayed of them um you know rishi Sunak really is tiny if you if you've met him he's he's very thin as well as small you just want to fold him up and put him in your pockets but actually, it's the thing about small people is, <laughs> um but he he he's actually what's so good about short people is that they've got lots of to fight for so they're fighting harder to make them their presence felt uh and i suppose that's perhaps why we've got this crop of very successful powerful men who've all had to fight their way through the armies of tall people at school yeah. um to get to where they are what do you think um Manveen? yeah and i think it's really interesting it, you know it's partly you're right it's partly because you see them on tv you don't notice it so much but there's also a lot of media management around this you know rishi sunak would always be photographed yeah. with his treasury team going down the stairs behind him so you couldn't see how much shorter he was <laughs> and I, I i was i was quite shocked by putin because you know he always see him uh, yeah, either behind yeah, yeah. a desk or you know sort of on, on horseback looking very sort of manly uh, so to see that he's actually um, just as short as, as you know, the, the shortest leaders we've been talking about yeah. was a, a bit of a surprise. Yeah. Um, and I suppose it only really matters if if all the stuff about a Napoleon complex is true, whether it does make you more likely to be aggressive in order to prove that uh, your height doesn't represent your manliness or anything. And, you know, with Putin, that might well be the case. Yeah. So um, let, let's hope 
he gets a good therapist. Matthew Bell and Manveen Rana, then of course you can catch Manveen every day on the Stories of Our Times podcast. One story told in depth each day. Just search, well, wherever you're currently listening to this. Right, up next, we take a look at the politics of politicians going on holiday. Not everyone has to make such short choices about where to go, who to go with, and crucially, who's going to pay for it. I was down in Parliament yesterday afternoon as MPs and uh, ministers wished each other bon vacances, have a good break, see you in September. Some real end-of-term vibes uh, down there yesterday. Well, most backbenchers can happily clear off for a fortnight somewhere nice with the family, safe in the knowledge that nobody knows who they are. In fact, I once bumped into a Tory MP on a hovercraft, uh, coming from France back to England. I didn't recognise them initially, uh, but uh, uh, they could do what they like. But for party leaders and other high-profile politicians, the summer holiday is fraught with danger. So today, we are going to bring you our guide to the do's and don'ts of a politician's summer holiday. Uh, so I'm joined by uh, Giles Cunningham, former head of press under David Cameron. Uh, morning, Giles. Morning, Matt. Uh, good to have you with us. And Claire Irvin, Head of Travel for the Times and the Sunday Times, is going to be the, the travel expert in all of this. Morning, Claire. Good morning, Matt. So, uh, let's start uh, with the nice... We've got, we've got different types of holiday, and I want to sort of pick through your, your thoughts on good idea, bad idea, basically. So, let's start with the, the easiest political holiday, uh, what I call the Cornwall for the Cameras holiday. Uh, the story begins in August 1965. The, the Times reported, this is generally from the Times in August, the Prime Minister crossed one sunburnt leg over the other and surveyed a patch of blue sky. Howard Wilson was holding a press conference in the sand dunes of the Isles of Scilly. Forty-odd journalists were down there in their sort of heavy woolen suits, uh, sweating in the sunshine, while they interviewed Howard Wilson about the economy, defence, the prospect of a Lib Lab pact. It meant that he became the first Prime Minister to show his knees in public. Uh, and he had the cameras there as well, uh, changing forever the idea of politics, politicians going on holiday. Margaret Thatcher and Dennis Thatcher did the same, posing on a beach and playing go- golf in Cornwall for the benefit of the cameras in 1981. David, David and Samantha Cameron got it down to a fine art, making an annual pilgrimage to Cornwall, posing for a photographer, and then basically hoping then he'd be left alone. Uh, which is what David Cameron always wanted, because what you don't want is the paps to catch you on holiday, which happened to David Cameron in 2013. When he was on holiday in Cornwall, he was spotted performing the old 
dad routine of awkwardly wiggling your way out of a damp pair of swimming shorts, trying not to show your bum using a Mickey Mouse towel tied around his waist to protect his modesty. There is, as far as I'm concerned, nothing finer than getting out of London and getting down to Cornwall and uh, no better place than Polzeth Beach when the sun is setting and the, the, waves, are, uh, the waves are big and, uh, and, and my phone is, is working. And the Daily Mail photographer's gone home too, that helps. <laughs> I was actually working for Mail Online at the time and I was on holiday in Polzeth and I kept bumping into him, was desperately trying not to be accused of being the one taking the photos. Anyway, Giles, how important is it, as Rishi Sunak and Keir Starmer plan their holidays this summer, how important is it for them to look like they might be staycationing? Yeah, I mean, look, it's a safety first option, isn't it? Um, especially in a cost of living crisis, I suspect both of them will be acutely aware of this and it's sort of you know, the easiest way I suppose to do that and you've got less chance less chance of being attacked um, you know look I have a fair bit of sympathy for politicians wanting to go abroad and, and getting a, a, away from it all uh, uh, but it is it is difficult and I think as you said with David Cameron we used to agree a picture at the start of the holiday uh, as a deal with the press to then leave him alone and it would in- inevitably be him either having a coffee or pointing at some fish in a market somewhere. <laughs> <laughs> but pointing at happen, fish, we all, way... we, we, all, we all have fond memories of the... Exactly. It, he always wore what? exactly the same clothes as well, a sort of dark blue yeah, well, because if, T-shirt. You know, God bless... God bless, you know, your former paper, Daily Mail, would go through it and analyse, you know, how much does his T-shirt cost, how much does his trainers cost, how much does his shorts cost. It'd be the same thing when he'd go out during the floods. It'd be like, make sure he's not got a pair of wellies on, which costs 150 quid, because uh, the mail will be all over it. <laughs> See, I think what happened in 2013, and also subsequent to that, was that there was this unwritten rule, this consensus agreement with the press, right, get a picture, leave him alone. But I think the mirror certainly once or twice broke that. Yeah. You had pictures of them boogie boarding in the sea or getting changed and that kind of thing. So, yeah, I mean, I do have some sympathy with them. I remember Blair used to sort of swan off to Barbados. The thought of doing that with Cameron would have been an absolute no-no. Well, we'll come... Because we were almost, always trying to sort of bat off that kind of out-of-touch elitist tag that his opponents tried to label him with. We'll come to, we'll come to Tony Blair's slightly more extravagant holidays moment. Claire, is the, is the staycation still a thing? Obviously, we all had to do it during the uh, during the pandemic. Is, is that still an option? I mean, particularly, I suppose, if you want to avoid the heat wave, staying in the UK seems quite sensible. Oh, absolutely. I mean, it's a massive thing. Although I have to say, if I wanted to get away from it all and save money, I'm not sure Cornwall would be top of my list. <laughs> Where but, would be then? This is what you're here for, Claire. Where if you, well, Smart staycation I mean, options. Some, there are some amazing alternatives to Cornwall. If you want that kind of Cornwall, you know, if you want the coastal UK experience, you could go to Carmarthenshire, for example, Cinderella of the West, beautiful open spaces, just wonderful um, amazing world countryside. Um, similarly, Northumberland. I mean, you may not have the microclimate that you have in Cornwall, but you can't always rely on that anyway. In the uh, um, and and so it has really low key beauty, beautiful coastlines. But if you want um, slightly better weather, um, I mean, there's there's sort of um, give or take the odd firing range. There's some really gorgeous parts of Dorset which still remain relatively secret. <laughs> between Lulworth Cove and Kimmeridge Bay, for example. Nice. So, I mean, there's lots of options. Fact, I'm, I'm off to Dorset uh, for the weekend, sleeping in a shed. And, ooh, Fabulous. Don't tell everyone. Don't, exactly, don't tell everyone. <laughs> um, so, uh, so the, the, more, the, the, the do's and don'ts here, do get publicity shots, don't get caught with your shorts down. That seems to be the, the rules for the staycation. So let's move on to number two. The big decisions on holiday, holiday. Mm. 
uh, packing her bags for Snowdonia in early April 2017. Theresa May was riding high in the polls, really high. Uh, a YouGov survey had her 42%, while uh, Labour's uh, under Jamie Corbyn, only 25%. She was on course for a landslide. So as her and her husband checked into a hotel at the foot of Kader Idris, the highest peak in southern Snowdonia, she knew it was Labour who had a mountain to climb. And she was considering a snap general election. Before Easter, I spent a few days walking in Wales with my husband, thought about this long and hard, and uh, came to the decision that to provide that stability and certainty for the future, uh, that, that this was the way to do it, to have an election. And You know, I, I, I trust the British people. Wasn't quite such a good idea, though, was it, Giles? <laughs> no, it certainly wasn't. I also know with Theresa, she used to go to the same place every year, which sort of struck me as having a lack of uh, imagination. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> what, 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 possibly what you mean by that. Um, there's, um, Giles, there's been lots of talk uh, about uh, Rishi Sunak and what he should do. If he goes on holiday this summer, should he, should he, should he be thinking about calling a snap election? Uh, no, and I suspect he won't. But I suspect you know, the issue with Sunat will be the issue we have with Cameron. Um, you know, we're in the midst of a cost of living crisis. We had austerity back in sort of 212, 213. He's got to be very careful not to look out of touch. Not to see a line of attack Labour looking to paint on him. And, you know, not, not by any means, you know, uh, his own fault. You know, he's been successful in his own right, but he is wealthy. And I think they will be sensitive to those kind of lines of attacks, I suspect. He may well do uh, a staycation, uh, uh, and if he does go abroad, I suspect it will be nowhere too glamorous. Do you use your holidays to to make big decisions regarding the future of the country, Claire? Oh, every time, every time. <laughs> it's a nice part of the world, though, going up snow, don't you? Absolutely beautiful, yeah. And and I mean, Theresa May, you know, does seem to have set the tone for lots of holidays. Um, after that, walking holidays are really massive, and anything where there's kind of a bit of a, a, an element of adventure. So, Stonia, of course, um, offers that. You know, um, a friend of mine's just taken her family up there, um, and and <laughs> ended up wearing absolutely everything that all her kids are taking with her. But you know, so however well you prepare. Um, you know, there's always room for, for error there, I think. But yeah, I mean, absolutely gorgeous. You know, and we're really lucky in the UK that there is this, in, in all seriousness, this, you know, we have such a variety of landscapes and uh, weather and, yeah. uh, and adventures. And I, you know, I remember the endless conversations when she, when she was probably about the walking poles, walking poles, because she basically made walking poles fashionable. Yeah, that's, absolutely. That's well, I mean... Them. Yeah, and, the, you know, it continues really strongly. I mean, I was talking to HF Holidays earlier today who run um, group tours and individual tours. And, you know, for solo travellers who want to go and have a bit of company, um, walking, you know, represents like a really nice opportunity for a bit of exercise, a bit of fresh air, make some friends. Make make decisions. Make about decisions. The country. Very small decisions. So yeah. Th th so the do's and don'ts. Do get some fresh air. That seems like a good thing to do. Uh, take time to breathe, but don't accidentally lose your majority. Um, <laughs> seems to be the do's and don'ts. Right. Let's move on to number three. The politically damaging holiday. Sometimes it's not where you go, but who you're with, and who is paying for it. Normal people they go on holiday. You know, you might eat some prawns, buy some tie-dye trousers, get towed on a banana behind a speedboat. But when Priti Patel was International Development Secretary, she went on holiday to Israel, had dozens of meetings with senior ministers, officials and members of the security service, which her own government back here in Britain knew nothing about. First of all, she said the government did know about it. Then she issued a line-by-line -line rebuttal of herself. 
then questions started being asked in the House of Commons. So Priti Patel got on a plane to Uganda, so she didn't have to answer those questions. When she landed there, Theresa May told her to come straight back. 24,000 people tracked her flight home to the UK, which I think is about the same number of people she met while she was in Israel. My actions caused difficulty for the government, as the 24,000 people who were tracking me at the time also, you know, saw. And I take the view that, you know, as a politician, we all know other politicians around the world, you know, whether you are abroad, on business or even on holiday, I think it's remiss if you don't actually go meet people that you know. That, I mean, that, that, that might be one of my favourite ever bad holidays for politicians to have taken, Giles. Yeah, it was certainly a, a massive faux pas um, going on. But yeah, I mean, I think the other question, which was always in the back of our heads, was the sort of the media narrative when the prime minister went away and was like, who's in charge? Who's running the country? Yeah. Of which the official line was always, the prime minister is still in charge, he's running the country. But you used to have ministers peacocking, trying to sort of jockey for position when he was out of the country. I remember, yeah, in 2015, um, famous, I think, Theresa May and Philip Hammond were both sort of, you know, um, trying to sort of jockey for that position. Claim like, yeah, that they were actually in charge. Yeah. Playing the games, yeah. Who's going to be hosting the morning meeting, which Cameron traditionally did? Well, let's fast forward to early 2020. Just as we were trying to work out what this coronavirus thing was all about, Boris Johnson faced an investigation into his 10-day holiday with Carrie Simmons in Mustique. Uh, I, I haven't seen the, the conclusion of, of that, but uh, as I understand it, uh, the, the, the committee has, uh, has found that there was no case to answer. Yeah, uh, he was criticised for failing to promptly explain how the trip to Mustique was funded, although he was cleared of breaching the rules. And of course, uh, no discussion of risky political holidays, as Giles was saying a minute ago, will be complete without Tony Blair's love of the high life. During his decade as Prime Minister, he received £775,000 worth of breaks uh, with a BG, Cliff Richard... And the Italian Prime Minister, Silvio Berlusconi, spent so much time with Berlusconi, Tony Blair actually could do an impression of him. Hey, Tony. <laughs> no, 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 impossible. No, impossible. This is the nation of Leonardo da Vinci, Michelangelo, Verdi, Firenze, Roma, Venezia. And here we are on your tie, Catrioni Stagi Pizza. <laughs> Uh, Giles, is it okay? Is it ever okay to get a rich friend to give you a free holiday? I think with politicians, it's more hassle than it's worth. Honestly, you know, you saw the trouble Boris got into. Uh, you saw how, you know, when it came to Tony Blair, money and taking freebies was a big problem for him. So I think it's something just to stick clear of. Right, let's move on to number four. The don't come back from holiday, holiday. Once you've decided where to go, cleared it with your spouse, your permanent secretary and number 10 spin doctors, you've packed your bags and jetted off. The last thing you want to do as a politician is come back, no matter how bad things get. Well, in 2011, riots erupted across London, leaving a trail of destruction as arsonists set fire to buildings and shops and businesses were looted. The mayor of London was 4,000 miles away in a caravan in the Canadian Rockies. He didn't come home, he said because he didn't have a phone signal. And then when he finally did return, Boris Johnson was heckled in Clapham Junction. You need to resign! What about the... It is time, it is time, it is time, it is time that people who are engaged in looting, in looting and violence stopped hearing economic and sociological justifications for what they are uh, by contrast, uh, last uh, yeah, last year, Defence Secretary Ben Wallace cut his holiday short when the Ukraine crisis deepened. 
in uh, 2007, Gordon Brown made a short visit to a beach wearing full shirt, jacket and trousers before abandoning his family holiday in Dorset to get back to London to deal with the foot and mouth crisis. One of my favourites, that. But perhaps the best example of a politician trying to eke out their summer holidays came in 2021. As British and American troops left Afghanistan, Kabul was falling to the Taliban. Foreign Secretary Dominic Raab was in Crete and he was determined to stay there. He insisted he was working the whole time, though, rejecting reports he'd been spotted paddleboarding. Some of the reporting, some of the assertions you just put to me, just not true. But we were focused overwhelmingly on securing the airport, making sure, and I was engaged in meetings, that the, the, the stuff about me being lounging around on the beach all day, just nonsense. Uh, the, the stuff about me paddleboarding, nonsense. The sea was actually closed. It was a, a red notice. I was focused on the COBRA meetings, the Foreign Office team, the Director and the Director General, and the international engagement. The sea was actually closed. Genuinely one of my favourite phrases ever from a politician. Giles, when, how do you make the judgement of when is the right time to come back? Because the very act of coming back from holiday heightens the sense of crisis. Yeah, it does. I think always, though, it would generally be you to fall on the side of uh, sort of advising people to come back to Dominic Raab's, you know, you're kind of in a lose-lose situation. I've no doubt he was probably on Zoom call, but the optics of it would just look terrible. And, you know, you are judged by uh, judged by a different <coughs> set of rules. Um, uh, it kind of reminds me of it's not quite the same parallel, but I remember, I think it was in 2015, uh, when there were floods <laughs> Mail found out that the head of the environment agency was in Barbados. Now, to be fair to him, he'd gone to Barbados before the floods had started. Um, but obviously everyone was in uproar. I remember there was this huge clamour um, from the press, or it's sort of pressure on Cameron Osborne to sack him. And they were like, if we sack him, we'll never get anyone good because he'd come from the private sector to do the job. In the end, the guy said, stop it, I'm off, I'm done. Uh, I'm not putting up with this. But yeah, I think... <laughs> they, a different set of rules applies to politicians, and I think, yeah, often or not, they have to cut the holiday short. And, yeah, it's um, it's just, just the way it is. Uh, Claire, in all of your time as a travel journalist, have you ever seen the sea being closed? <laughs> no. Also, um, it's very hard to find red, orange and um, flags on the beach anyway, so I wonder how he knew that if he hadn't been there. <laughs> That's the thing that I always wanted. How did you know the sea was closed? If yeah. you were in your hotel room working very hard, looking at a map of Afghanistan. But no, also in my experience, very hard to close the sea. Yes, that is very true. And in terms of uh, coming back from holidays, that's, I mean, that just strikes me as an absolute nightmare, Claire. I mean, in terms of, you know, forking out for extra, most normal people wouldn't be able to do that. Well, um, I mean, on the upside, if you are coming back early, you're generally coming back at a lower demand on a lower demand day. So flights will be cheaper. But um, uh, of course, you know, it's really hard um, to just pack up and, and leave early. You know, if you're with your family, there's all the faff. Um, there's transfers. There's, um, you know, there is flights. There's, there's, it's a nightmare, not, not least with um, having to, you know, to manage all the small people yes. with their holiday being cut short, the, the, never mind the, the country thing, uh, at the other end of it. Anyone could imagine what it's like if you finally got away with your family on holiday and then you said, oh, I'm going to have to go back. 
the the, yeah. the grief and the hassle is probably yeah you can see why people want to say that right finally then in our rundown of the do's and don'ts of politicians on the holiday the not going on holiday holiday uh, while Rishi Sunak is away this summer we're told that Deputy PM Oliver Dowden will be in charge as Giles was saying who's in charge is very important this is not without its pitfalls though if the Prime Minister was away in May 2006 Tony Blair was heading to America leaving John Prescott in charge back home but then photographs emerged of the Deputy Prime Minister playing croquet uh, on the manicured lawns of Dorneywood, his grace and favour home, while officials claimed he was running the country from his Whitehall office. <laughs> I mean, that could be any number of sports. That could be golf, that could be snooker. Uh, it's a very quiet sport, croquet. He's always got very smooth uh, lawns. Um, uh, Giles, um, you've, you've slightly touched on it already, but the question of, of who is in charge while the Prime Minister is, is away... I suppose it's easier if you have an appointed deputy. Yeah, definitely, definitely, because it does become uh, it does become a bit like th- thick of it with this the pile again, like say who's in charge, who's making the decision. Um, and yeah, I, I do remember that there's Prescott photos which were which were glorious, and um, yeah, I think uh, from a man who waged class warfare, <laughs> they kind of backfired on it massively. Um, uh, Claire, are you a big fan of croquet? <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, no, <laughs> not really. No. Well, come on then. Let's. Uh, Claire, why don't you give us some suggestions? Where would you suggest Rishi Sunak and Keir Starmer go on holiday this summer? Well, I guess you do want to be somewhere that is fairly connected. But if you really honestly want to get away from it, you know, there's a lot of kind of second cities that offer everything that you know the holiday hotspots might do. Um, without necessarily the attention and all the crowds. Um, I mean, somewhere like Naples would be gorgeous, near the Amalfi Coast. Um, lots of great food, lots of great um, restaurants, without all the pressure of having to tick off, uh, you know, a load of bucket list sites. Um, and, you know, if you did need to cut that break short, you could hop on the, a flight, no problem. But, um, you know, this summer is, is a really interesting one because we've had all the, um, you, you know, the post-pandemic rush to get away there's still a lot a big sense of people um wanting to tick off their wish list and, and get to different places but then you've got you know natural disasters and the heat wave and so on that's affecting that so we're seeing still people wanting to go to um to venice to paris um and you know and and, and see european bucket list sites but also i mean yesterday you know um scott dunn for example i spoke to them we're still taking bookings for travel to spain today in the middle of a heat wave so it's um yeah uh, Mallorca if you do want to go to Spain is apparently um best value at the moment because the flight there's more flights to Mallorca than anywhere else so um of course rising airfares are pushing up holiday costs across the board but that's a a good tip yeah absolutely lovely stuff uh Well, I hope they're listening. Uh, we, we, we have tried to find out where we should sit down and Keir Starmer are going on a holiday, and they won't tell us. Uh, but maybe we'll find out eventually. Uh, thanks very much for doing your do's and don'ts of the politicians going on holiday. Uh, that was uh, Giles Cunningham, former head of press on, uh, under David Cameron, Claire Irving, head of travel for The Times and The Sunday Times. And that's all we've got time for on today's episode. Don't forget to hit subscribe so you don't miss any future episodes and let us know if you are listening to the podcast while you're on holiday. You can email me matt at times.radio. But for now, for me, Matt, Jolly is goodbye. Hold up. 